set. Places, everybody. And action. Hi, I'm here. The party can start now. I bid you welcome. Okay, sound effects. Blood sucking. Oh, brother. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. Not again! Bless me, fatter, for I've sinned. It's been almost two months since my latest episode. And these are my sins. Okay, can I get your name and where you're from? My name is Frankenstein! No, it's not. I lied, fatter. Oh, no. Yeah, well... In my last episode, I said we were going to meet the Kumian Sybil and the real Dr. Faust. And we are. I swear to God. Just not in this episode. You just ruined everything! Hi there, and welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. I thought I was in the wrong place. This here... Is episode 26. Oh, yes, y'all. We are gonna do this again. Like it's normal anymore. In our last episode, we attended a fairy tale fashion show where three distinctive dresses clued us into the intimate connection between certain fairy tales and hermeticism. In other words, many fairy tales, they'll have some symbol or element that metaphorically represents one or even all three of the hermetic arts, astrology, alchemy, and theurgy. And uh, that last one, theurgy, well, That was something I didn't really know much about, except through Jung's curiously indirect way of referring to it whenever he explained the meaning of the word Newman. Huh? See, in our time, Newman, uh, that pretty much has only one meaning. What's that? You know. Hiya, Newman. Right? Yes, sir. Well, according to Jung, Newman is the Latin word meaning a nod or a sign. And it's the source of the word numinous. <laughs> Looky boy, you're so fucking smart. Well, numinous should be something we can all relate to. Because it refers to that sensation you get when you're having what's otherwise known as a religious experience. Yeah, you know what I mean. That sensation of awe that you get when your deity is giving you a clear sign that you're in his or her presence. What are you talking about? Hey, I'm talking about the sensation you get when you're having a genuine, if not literal, holy shit! Uh, or I mean, holy sacred moment. Dracula is in the house. In the house? <clears throat> Very often, it's the sort of thing that happens out in nature, when you see something impressive, or unusual, or spectacular. In other words, when you're witness to any sort of sensational expression of the power of nature, with a capital N. Oh, really? Yeah. Jung gave it a more intriguing historical explanation. He said that the ancients would go up to the statue of a god or goddess, 
and whisper in its ear, asking for something. But then, unlike any one of us who's ever whispered a prayer and then gone about our business, these ancients, well, they would sit in front of the statue and wait, patiently, reverently, and meditatively, for the statue to give them a sign, which, according to Jung, came in the form of a physically perceived nod of the head. Porus says, what a load of bollocks. Yeah, well, Jung never said so. But in my earliest research into Hansel and Gretel, I learned that this statue business, it came right out of Hermeticism, which is to say the Hermetic literature. And while academics have called what they were doing animating statues, we can and should call these people, these ancients, by their rightful name. What's that? They were theurgists. Because what they were doing qualifies as a form of theurgy. Now, I also learned early on that theurgy might as well be considered the highest and most ancient form of what's otherwise known as magic, or even witchcraft. Ooh! Yeah, so in order to understand theurgy better, my work on episode 25 and this current episode, it forced me to stick my nose much deeper into the formidable rabbit hole known as Hermeticism. This doesn't smell quite the way I expected. And that's where I got a strong whiff of the fact that theurgy, it actually qualifies as the deepest aspect of just about every religion known to man. What? Hey, looked at with the eyes of logic and reason, theurgy seems to be nothing more than magical wishful thinking or self-delusional miracle working. And you know what? What? It even calls to mind those weeping or bleeding statue reports that most of us Catholics have heard about somewhere along the line. You realize some people aren't going to be happy with this? Yeah, but that's logic and reason sticking its snooty, pointy nose in places where it doesn't belong. In other words, into the numinous. Which is something we spoke about back in episode four. I remember. Yeah. Theurgy, above all, it's an art and exercise of intuition. It's a practice in which the theurgist communicates directly and privately with his or her god. A communication that's initiated through the reverential attitude and activity of the theurgist, and then completed through the benevolence and grace of the deity. Let me know if you know more about the source of all creation. What the hell? And speaking of grace, let me just whisper into your ears that I could really use the grace of your support. You dare to face a goddess? I'll leave a link to my Buy Me a Coffee page in the notes and on the website, and then patiently wait for, uh, you know, the spirit to uh, move you. That's uh, not funny. Yeah, come on, you know the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. Spread the love, yo. Amen. Now, getting back to ancient theurgy, the fact that it's connected to Hermeticism, it's almost a red herring. Because these days, Hermeticism has become a kind of catchphrase for any sort of occultish, new-agey esotericism. Hello and welcome to this meditation today. I'm glad you're here. We're gonna take it very easy and we're gonna try to do the meditation as quick as possible. Let's be efficient. 
You see, it was supposed to mean any text attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. And while there are theurgical texts that don't mention him at all, somehow Hermes Trismegistus got himself written into this fairy tale. Which is to say he's clearly referenced right here between the lines of this fairy tale, and specifically in Hansel's Moon Rocks. That said, knowing exactly who Hermes Trismegistus is or was, that'll take us a hell of a long way towards understanding exactly what Hansel and Gretel is all about. I don't get it. Because the name is just kind of boring. Hey, you remember Hermes Trismegistus, right? That guy we met and uh, praised back in episode 25? No. Come on. Sure you do. You know. Hey, Bob! Hey, Bob! Hey, Bob! Part 1 Teil 1 In which we fall asleep while reading the Emerald Tablet and find ourselves dreaming about some cousin of Rocky the Flying Squirrel. Eeny, meeny, chilly beeny, the spirits are about to speak. Are they friendly spirits? Friendly? Just listen. Hermeticism is quite the can of worms. Not because the material is so illogical and difficult to follow. In fact, reading through translations of the hermetic material, it's a piece of cake. As long as you're tuned into your intuition, that is. Now, the real difficulty is that there are so many empirical facts concerning Hermeticism, and especially theurgy, that are relevant to our story. It's hard to know where to begin. For the record, I am not an expert on Hermeticism. And uh, I gotta admit, before this episode... I hadn't read any of the so-called Corpus Hermeticum. Uh, excuse you. Yeah, I know. The Corpus Hermeticum, it's a small collection of texts that rocked the Renaissance, and it turned plenty of Quattrocento intellectuals into New Age Neoplatonic groupies. Oh, wow, man. Now, the only Hermetic text I had read was the so-called Emerald tablet. And that was probably because it's only 14 sentences long. Of course, everybody knows the Emerald Tablet by that cheesy New Age catchphrase, as above, so below. Of course. But uh, I happen to know it a bit more deeply. How? Well, it was from a dream I once had in 1998. Oh, really? Yeah. This dream was like a theater piece that vividly portrayed the Emerald Tablet's seventh and eighth sentences in a way that logic would never tolerate. You can't do that! Now I'm going to quote them for you. But as you listen, think of them as if they were describing an alchemical operation taking place in some hermetically sealed laboratory glassware. Oops. Oh, brother. You will separate the earth from the fire the subtle from the dense, sweetly, with great skill. It ascends from earth into heaven, and again it descends to the earth and receives the power of higher and of lower things. Oh, but that's all superstition. Well, so here's my dream. Well, good night. I'm in the courtyard of a 
big medieval sort of palazzo. Oh, very nice. Now, after I woke up, I recognized it as the 18th century Palazzo Aldrovandi in Bologna. And that was a place I knew in real life because I spent one summer going there every morning to study for my physiology exam. See, there was a university library housed in the palazzo, and I desperately needed the discipline of getting up and going to that library every morning because uh, physiology it was such a bitch for me to learn. So anyway, in the dream, I was aware of seeing some small animal and was flying around, and I understood it to be a flying mole. Ugh! Yeah, you know, kind of like uh, Rocky the Flying Squirrel. Of course, there ain't no such animal, but that's what Psyche was giving me. And I could see that this flying mole, he wasn't doing all that well with his flying, until some huge fire rose up in the courtyard that started lifting him up on the flames and heated up air. And then, just as he reached the northeast corner of the roof, it started to rain. And all that water washed him right down the drainpipe. And I could see that down on the street, he got spit out into something like a rain barrel. Now back then, I recognized the alchemical significance of the dream. After all, I was deep into reading Jung at the time but I hadn't understood why the dream gave me a mole flying around in it until I read the Emerald Tablet. So now, fast forward 24 years, and because of this podcast, I'm finally digging into more Hermetica than just the Emerald Tablet. And that's why this episode has taken me so much longer to produce than I would have liked. See, the important hermetic texts themselves, they aren't exactly a rabbit hole. Is there a book you'd like me to have you find? But they are well worth any time you might take to read them. Typical, he'd want the biggest book in the library. And if you tune into your intuition, you'll find that some of this stuff is really fascinating. I don't think so. Okay, maybe it's not as vivid as my flying mole dream. But overall, it is pretty frickin' important. And what I mean by important is that it was, and still is, meant to have a serious impact on our culture, and therefore, on our everyday lives. What a load of rubbish. Well... Just don't read it expecting to find all sorts of entertaining woo-woo stuff. Why the fuck not? Turns out that a certain portion of the hermetic material, and especially the corpus hermeticum, it says next to nothing at all about our three intuitive arts. In fact, it's almost enough to put you to sleep. Why, 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 why? Well, that's because it focuses on the same sort of stuff referenced in the book of Genesis. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah, it talks about the origin of man, the origin of God and the gods, and it brings up the origin of the soul, the origin of the cosmos. It even talks about the fall of man. I often think about the God who blessed us with this cryptic puzzle. Now granted, that may not sound like anything that affects your everyday life, it does have profound implications for Western European Judeo-Christian culture. And that means, my friends, it has a tremendous impact on those of us born into that culture. Because whatever culture we're born into, well, that shapes the way we do whatever it is we do every day. And the way we think about anything and everything. Bollocks, just bollocks. Yeah, well, aside from that cosmologic philosophic business, a good portion of the hermetic material does indeed speak to astrology, alchemy, and, for lack of a more precise term, theurgic magic. 
See, but through it all, and I mean everything, except maybe the most crass of magic spells and instructions, stuff that's meant purely for egotistical purposes, the hermetic texts, and even the three hermetic arts, they're all really about instructing us on how we can properly get back. And not necessarily get back to Eden, because Eden is mostly Judeo-Christian. And this material is far more universal than that. Now, they're all about the soul's return to its divine origin. In other words, the aim of Hermeticism amounts to the very same thing as the metaphoric aims of Hansel and Gretel. You know, getting back home to their origin, that heavenly place known as home and the house of the Father. And I guess, as far as my own soul is concerned, it's probably looking for some heavenly place where it can play an exciting game of, you know, theological whack-a-mole. Part 2 Teil 2 In which we read what some Wikipedia editors have to say about Hermeticism. And then we do some alternate thinking for ourselves. What do y'all think? You know what I think? I said this before, but I think that anybody who disagrees with me is just a fucking bitch. I mean, really. So, here's how at least one iteration of Wikipedia described Hermeticism. Hermeticism is a set of philosophical and religious beliefs based primarily upon the pseudo-epigraphical writings attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. What the fuck does that mean? Well... That sentence doesn't tell us anything about what those philosophical and religious beliefs are. It just says that any text attributed to Hermes Trismegistus qualifies as Hermetica. It also says that none of the Hermetic texts were actually written by Hermes Trismegistus. No, the the real anonymous authors, they just said that they were. That's not good. And that's a pretty consistent theme throughout history. All sorts of books were attributed to famous authors. Guys like Aristotle, Aquinas, and uh, Apollonius. They had their names plastered on all sorts of books that they never wrote. Now, obviously, the real authors did that to give their books a cachet of importance and authority that they themselves couldn't command. And, you know... Who's going to want to read anything written by Curtis Cates? I mean, please. Amen. So, uh, regardless of who wrote them, the three most famous of all the Hermetic texts are the Corpus Hermeticum, the Emerald Tablet, and something called the Perfect Sermon, which is also known as the Asclepius. Oh my god, oh my god, they're overpriced. They are overpriced. Now that first one, the Corpus Hermeticum, we've already been talking about it. It's a collection of short texts from somewhere around the second century of the Common Era. The collection had disappeared somewhere into Islam, but then made its way back into Europe around 1462 when it was translated into Latin, first by Marsilio Ficino, and then by Lodovico Lazzarelli. Si, 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 si. Si. Esatto. Si. Si. Now, Wikipedia has also said, These post-Christian Greek texts dwell upon the oneness and goodness of God. They urge the purification of the soul and defend pagan religious practices such as the veneration of images. Oh, I love you. I love you. I fucking love you. I love you so 
much. Oh, brother. See, that veneration of images business? That's a blunted reference to Jung's explanation of the Newman. And the talking and nodding statues we also spoke about in episode 25. I remember. Now, not to overly criticize the Wikipedia authors and editors, but calling this stuff pagan, it's kind of hilarious. Even though it sort of qualifies as that. Now, overall, the wiki article, it pretty much repeats the heavily biased perspective of mainstream Christianity. And that includes not only the modern Christian perspective, but the perspective of our Renaissance Catholic translator, Marsilio Ficino. Not to mention everyone else who read that translation and found themselves fascinated by the material. And while they all delighted in it, I hate it with a passion. Well, uh, all except for St. Augustine, that is. And that was a good millennium before Ficino. Augustine already knew about Hermes Trismegistus and he considered him to be blind and hold perversely positive views about things that he considered vain, deceitful, pernicious, and sacrilegious. Oh, that's not good. Oh, boy. Anyway, let me tell you why so many guys were fascinated by their hermetic texts. Please, don't do that. See, the wiki article says... Their predominant literary form is the dialogue. Hermes Trismegistus instructs a perplexed disciple upon various teachings of the hidden wisdom. That's not funny. That's not funny. Eh, maybe not. But that, uh, hidden wisdom business? That's just a sort of new age hook that would attract plenty of readers back then. And today. And you know what? What? Uh, I gotta tell you. In finally reading those texts for myself, it suddenly hit me. Oh! They sound like the Baltimore Catechism. Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? Well, yeah, I do. Because the Baltimore Catechism or as my fifth-grade teacher called it, the Baltimore Catechism, was a real pain in my rear end. See, for eight long years, the nuns of my Catholic grammar school, they forced us to memorize those catechism questions and answers as if we were prepping for some theological quiz show. That is so not funny. Well, you may not think that's funny, but I find it hilarious. That's because that recognition, it's the same thing that got so many Renaissance intellectuals all juiced up and fascinated. They thought these texts were ancient, pre-Christian Catholic catechism lessons. And they figured that Hermes Trismegistus, well, he was some ancient member of the Knights of Columbus or something from the time of Moses whose job was to teach some ancient grammar school ignoramus all about the coming of Christ. Jesus Christ. See, that's what happens when you take the time to read and think through the original material for yourself. You make personal connections that aren't written down anywhere by the academics, and sure as hell can't be found in any wiki article. Hmm... So, in this case, while much of the information in the Corpus Hermeticum and the Asclepius, well, it sounds like it came right out of a Catholic catechism, Hermes spoke of a deity that's more consistent with the Gnostic Demiurge than any New Testament god. Hmm. And while the Gnostic Demiurge bears an interesting resemblance to Yahweh from the Old Testament, you know, Jaws? Hmm. I can't say much more about that now. What I can say is that it's got me interested in the rabbit hole 
of Gnosticism. Uh-oh. Don't worry. That's not something I'm going to bother you with. Not in the context of this fairy tale. Thank you. Now, most interesting for Jungians is the fact that the Hermetic texts are indeed written in the form of a dialogue. And that's the very form Jung used in his Red Book. It's also consistent with a 4,000-year-old Egyptian text known as the Dialogue of a World-Weary Man with his Ba, as indeed Hermeticism is linked to, and probably even derived, from ancient Egypt. Mm. Now, I just have to say this about Jung, for those of you more acquainted with his work. It seems more obvious to me now that Jung's use of active imagination, his so-called transcendent function, of which his Red Book is a powerful example, well, it's actually an explicit practice of theurgy, as he dialogues with the spirit of the depths. Hello, I am a psychiatrist, and I would like to prescribe you some pills that will make you go crazy. Now, reading directly from the Hermetica, it shows me that Jung's conception of individuation, well, it's consistent with the aims of hypnosis, theurgy, and all of Hermeticism, not to mention those of Hansel and Gretel. Is that so? Anyway, achieving all this goodness and reunion with the One, as recommended by Hermes, that's the sum and substance of theurgy, which actually ends up being a not-so-occult method of worshipping the deity of your choice, and then being rewarded for it by a generous gift of divine grace. And no, uh, I'm not going to ask you again for the grace of your support. I am surprised. Not in this episode. I'll uh, just let somebody else do it. Please! 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 Oh my god. Part 3 Teil 3 In which we get on the time machine and take a little trip to look for the real Hermes Trismegistus. In Sweden? Diavla helvete! An odd but common thread I've always found interesting in the many references to Hermeticism that I've come across through the years. It's a kind of consistent obsession so many people have with learning the true identity of Hermes Trismegistus. That's correct. Everyone seems terribly eager to weigh in on this fairly obvious non-mystery. Excuse me? So once again, according to Wikipedia, Many Christian writers, including Lactantius, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, Giordano Bruno, Marsilio Ficino, Tommaso Campanella, and Giovanni Pico della Mirandola considered Hermes Trismegistus to be a wise pagan prophet who foresaw the coming of Christianity. And the same again and again and again. This is repetitive. Definitely. Now one of the clues we have comes in line 13 of the Emerald Tablet. And the crucial part reads, Itaque vocatus sum Hermes Trismegistus, habens tres partes philosophiae, philos, philosophiae totius mundi. <laughs> That's fucking not funny. Uh, there, sorry. Therefore, I am named thrice great Hermes, having the three parts of the philosophy of the whole world. Yeah, what do you know? Now, this doesn't tell us who Hermes is, but it 
does tell us something about his nature. And it sure backs up my intuitive understanding of those three fairy tale dresses, because those three parts of the philosophy of the whole world, well, they're unmistakable as a reference to alchemy, astrology, and theurgy. Yeah, so what? Yeah, I know, I know. This, this still doesn't tell us who Thrice Greatest Hermes is or was. One thing I can tell you for sure, though, and that is, I have discovered his true identity. No way. Oh, yes way. And yep, we're talking about another one of Hansel's historical ancestors. Well, that's no surprise at all. Now, before I reveal the truth about this extraordinary personage, let me introduce you to a few more of those historical family ancestors. And specifically, those who share the same dominant personality trait as Hansel. What I mean is intuition. All right, if you insist. So uh, let's hop on the time machine and take a nice little trip up to Sweden. Okay? My way, helvete, Pong. I've been sitting here at freaking Stratosphere for an hour and ten minutes. Now there's like 90 million people on this fucking day. Doors closing. Standing passengers, please do not lean against the doors. Ouch. Okay, so if we take the local and stop off a few places between 1688 and 1772, we can follow around Emanuel Swedenborg and see where he fits into the Holzhacker family tree. You've heard of Swedenborg, right? The famous theologian, scientist, philosopher, and mystic? Maybe. All right, well, at first glance, it might seem that Understanding Swedenborg as a direct ancestor of Hansel isn't quite accurate. He is, after all, Swedish and not German. Oh, I think very much, Captain Obvious. And even more pointedly, his early life interest in mathematics, physics, and anatomy it seems to indicate he's more connected to the thinking function than the intuitive function. Oh, absolutely. Then again, his reputation as a seer or mystic, well, it indicates intuition must be his dominant function. Precisely. And that means you'd have to think his typology and temperament connects him to both intuition and thinking, making him a so-called NT or intuitive thinker. I don't think you know. Well, I don't know enough about him to say if he was extroverted or introverted, but I do know that I myself, like Swedenborg, was educated in the sciences, and only later in my 40s got introduced to my own intuition. Who cares? Unlike Swedenborg, though, I'm no intuitive thinker. Thinking not your strong point, dear? Eh, I guess so. In fact, my thinking function? Duh, that's a real problem. See, over the years, I've observed that intuitive thinking types, like Jung, and unlike myself, well, they have a way with words. And what I mean is, they have a way of expressing intuitive concepts with seeming ease, and with a clarity born of the strength of their thinking function. Can you believe that? I don't know how I got that. Guys like that, they make me envious as hell because I struggle mightily with the verbal expression of each and every thought and intuitive concept I want to communicate. Got that right. And that's true, especially when it comes to writing and preparing each episode of this podcast. See, I can sense that my difficulty... It's a consequence of the strength of my feeling function. Paired with intuition, 
feeling can never find the right sequence of words for anything. I know. I know. Yeah, just remember, Gretel is most likely the feeling function. I remember. And what does she do? She never says anything. She just cries. Anyway, Swedenborg wrote and published so very much stuff, I'd have to read through a greater chunk of it in order to form a more educated opinion about him. But uh, having gotten just a taste of that writing, there's no doubt in my mind that he qualifies as a theurgist. Interesting. Something else I know is that because of his interest in metallurgy, mining, and chemistry, he might even have been an alchemist. See, whenever you read about early modern alchemists, it turns out that even more than chemistry, most of them did indeed study metallurgy and mining. And that's because before Robert Boyle, who died in 1691, there really was no chemistry as we now know it. Boyle, he was an alchemist who brought the thinking function to bear on his alchemical work. And so he became known as the father of modern chemistry. Clever. Ultimately, there's no question Swedenborg belongs somewhere in the Holzhacker family tree. And while his writings have a strong Christian bent, not to mention a heavy-duty biblical focus, I'm intrigued enough to want to read more of his stuff firsthand. At least in translation. Are you sure? All right, let's get back to the time machine and go back another 100 years or so and visit another Swedish Holzacker ancestor, this time by the name of Johannes Boreas. Sorry. No, there's no more room. No. Can we go today? Keep all limbs and extremities within the confines of the vehicle. Collision imminent. Not good. Okay, okay. Now, Johnny B is super important because he embodies so many of the underlying themes of Hansel and Gretel. In fact, there are so many facts about him that, once again, it's difficult for an intuitive feeling person like myself to sort them out and present them logically. Oh, no. As I said, eh, this is a serious problem for us intuitive feelers. We can read and absorb information like sponges, but then uh, squeezing out that information into a nice, neat sequence of well-summarized and logically ordered ideas, it seems a practical impossibility. Affirmative. Normally, All we end up with is a puddle and a muddle. Indubitably. I mean, talk about a crappy first draft. You can always tell when you're reading the work of an intuitive feeler, an NF. Yep. We tend to jump all over the place with relative clauses, trying to give you context, instead of just coming right to the point and delivering the goods. Exactly. So it's only by the grace of some very patient editorial deity and a hell of a lot of re-re-re-re-and-rewriting that this podcast is in a complete and utter muddle. Enough rants. Okay, rant over. So one, or let's say a pocketful, of the facts linking Burius to Hansel are Hansel's moon rocks. See, first of all, in researching theurgy, I was surprised to learn that there was, and still is, an intuitive practice known as cephomancy. The fuck is that? Uh, Simply put, cephomancy is a method of divination using pebbles. And while the connection between Hansel's moon rocks and Boreas does indeed come about through pebbles and divination, it does not come about by way of 
Psephomancy. What the fuck? It comes about through runes. Uh? And that's because runes are linked to the same sort of pre-Christian Teutonic religious worship we already mentioned in episode three. I remember. All right, now it still might sound a little far-fetched. Indeed. In subsequent episodes, though, we're going to see how it makes even more sense to connect Hansel's pebbles with runes than with a rosary. Okie dokie. So the real reason we're visiting Johannes Boreas, Johnny B, right now, is that he considered runes to constitute a Scandinavian or Gothic Kabbalah, in which the secrets of all sciences, including alchemy, had been hidden for posterity. And uh, get this, Wilhelm Grimm was also fascinated with runes. He wrote two books on the subject with something of the same intent, meaning he wanted to show that runes were a deep, ancient source of primal Teutonic wisdom. No, really? Boreas felt that the runic letters were signs of divine secrets, leading the one who could fathom their full meaning to a union with the ultimate godhead. Eh? Really? I am so surprised about that. That's theurgy, right? Eh? And henosis. <gasps> and Hansel and Gretel. I cannot imagine that. I am surprised. According to Burius, the very act of interpreting the runes not only revealed primal secrets of Gothic culture, which he felt to be the true basis of all European culture, but that the activity of laboring at this kind of interpretation, that was itself a kind of alchemical operation, or even theurgic ritual that led one to become not merely a godlike being, but in the words of Pico della Mirandola, a divinity clothed with human flesh. How is that possible? So runes are not the only thing that marks Burius as an ancestor of Hansel. There's much more information on that front. And as it comes much deeper in the fairy tale, it belongs in much later episodes. For now, though, Burius is linked to Hermes Trismegistus, not only by his making runic wisdom sound like hermetic wisdom, the connection comes indirectly through his interest in reading alchemical texts and reading the work of one particular alchemist, Gerhard Dorn, who had a particular interest in the Swiss physician Paracelsus. And it's by way of Dorn that Boreas adds yet another dress to the trinity of fairy tale hermetic couture. You are kidding, right? Well, actually, it's not really a dress. But it really should be. Because it's Dorn, who may or may not have been quoting Paracelsus, when he mentions another important intuitive art. And while this art may not show up in any of the Grimm's fairy tales, it certainly shows up in the work of Pico della Mirandola. What's that? It's the Kabbalah. Really? Uh, yep. Pico was a student of Marsilio Ficino, and he was the first Christian to treat knowledge of Kabbalah as valuable. In fact, it was his opinion that theurgy and the Kabbalah were the best proofs of Christ's divinity. <laughs> oh! So I'm going to quote from a marvelous article in the Journal of Early Science and Medicine, just to show you how we got here. It's called Alchemy of the Ancient Goths, Johannes Boreas's Search for the Lost Wisdom of Scandinavia. Do not do that, please. No, 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 no. It says... Boreas collected extensive excerpts from the work of the Belgian physician and alchemist, Gerard Dorn. He, Boreas, 
devoted particular attention to Dorn's account of how Adam, infused by the light of God, had invented all the arts and sciences. To make sure that this divine wisdom remained intact for future generations, his sons had engraved two tablets of stone, describing all natural arts in hieroglyphical characters. That's a fugazi. I'm sorry, what? It's a fake. Oh, forget about it! <clears throat> After the flood, one of these tablets was found on Mount Ararat by Noah, who passed the knowledge on to his descendants. From them, it later spread to Chaldea, Persia, and Egypt, where it flourished under the divine supervision of Hermes Trismegistus. In the course of time, however, the universal knowledge of Adam it gradually deteriorated and it fragmented into different disciplines, so that one man became an astronomer, another magician, a third a Kabbalist, and a fourth an alchemist. This is the biggest pile of crap I've ever heard. In our next episode, we're going to hear a little more about theurgy and a lot more about magic. Although, uh, I gotta tell you, while I may be really good at astrology and reading someone's birth chart, I'm not very good at predicting the future. Which is to say, I'm not very good at predicting exactly what I'm going to say in the next episode. That's bad. That, that's bad. That, that's bad. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, as I predicted in the last episode... We are going to meet the Kumian Sibyl, and we're also going to meet the real Dr. Faustus. Eh, just not in that order. This is nothing but random noise. Esatto. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. I think that's perfect. Okay. I'm going to scratch my nose, and I'm going to do the third three. <laughs> Teil 3. In which we were rich. This recording will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs>